Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one under the seat in front of you. Mark 11 can be found on page 823. <clears throat> As Josh uh, gave us a little orientation at the beginning of the service, Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week, which is the high point of the Christian calendar because Holy Week describes the events that form the climax of all of human history. Holy Week is also called Passion Week, which gets its name from the Latin word for suffering. And that theme shapes most of the week. The mood, many of the songs that we will sing to remember the events of Jesus last week. And today we focus on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The crowds had gathered in advance of the Jewish Passover feast, desiring a conquering king to free them from tyranny. But he hadn't come to be that kind of king. And then on, on Thursday, we'll gather early, if you're able to make it, for a dinner meal, and then proceed here into the sanctuary to celebrate a sacramental meal, to remember that last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples and left as nourishment for us for generations to come. And on Friday, we'll gather to mourn the darkest of days when the God-man willingly went to his death on a Roman cross. And then Resurrection Day, spoiler alert, new life from death, dawn after the darkness. But until then, let's read Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. These are God's words. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, as we kick off this most glorious of weeks, as we remember the last week of Jesus' life, Open our eyes that we might see perhaps familiar truth in a fresh way. Speak, O Lord, if your servants are listening. Amen. First, uh, when we look at what's going on here, the palms, the event of this triumphal entry, we need a little bit of first century history as background. The Roman Empire at the time ruled most of Europe, much of North Africa, and parts of Asia, or Asia Minor, including the territory called Judea, home to the Hebrews, 
the Israelites. Judea formed a strategic connection, if you can picture the eastern end of the Mediterranean, between um, Asia and Africa. But the Israelites were a, a unique nation and a little bit more difficult to conquer and to rule than her small size would indicate because Israel had this strong sense of national identity and a strong unifying faith. And so the Romans exercised political savvy more than brutal force, and they made a deal with the Israelite people. You keep your unique worship pattern centered on the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, all we expect of you is to keep the peace, to not let that um, affect your submission to Roman rule, and to not let that affect your duty as citizens to pay taxes back to Rome. And the religious authorities in Jerusalem uh, ended up becoming very sensitive to anything that might disrupt the status quo because of this careful arrangement with the Roman occupiers. So when this Nazarene began performing miracles... And when the people began to react to Jesus' miracles by catching messianic fever, especially after Lazarus was raised from the dead, right outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, the Pharisees and the chief priests plotted together to have Jesus arrested and killed. John chapter 11 tells us that Jesus no longer moved about publicly. There was a most wanted poster all over the area and a reward promised to tips leading to Jesus' capture and arrest. And yet, in the week leading up to Passover, Jesus' friends throw him a big dinner party in Bethany, right outside Jerusalem, right outside the the epicenter of animosity, all of his... Uh, greatest enemies looking to set a trap. And then on Sunday morning, March 29th, in the year 33, he instructs his disciples to get ready for a parade into the city of Jerusalem. He, he wouldn't sneak in on this young donkey because word had spread and crowds had gathered along the road laying down their cloaks to make a more dignified path for this king to process in, perhaps thinking we'll cut down on the amount of dung dust that would uh, fly up and dirty this coming king. Uh, This morning's devotional written by a member of our church interacted with the idea of laying down our cloaks for Jesus. And if they didn't have cloaks, they uh, ripped out branches from the field and laid them down as they shouted, Hosanna, save us, a clear sign that they saw Jesus as Messiah and Deliverer and Rescuer. This was a repeat of 1 Kings chapter 1, when Solomon, King David's son, rode the king's mule into Jerusalem to claim the throne as his father David uh, got close to dying. And this would be fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, who wrote, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this would be a preview of Revelation chapter 7 at the end of history. After this, 
In John's vision, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tri- nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. A little bit of history, a little bit of fulfillment, a little bit of a preview. No question, Jesus was claiming that He was Messiah, the one who would come to bring salvation for His people. So the only question was, did the people understand how the true king would claim his throne and apply his power? That leads us secondly to the prior pattern. Because if we look at some of the events recorded in Mark's gospel, the triumphal entry is in all four gospels. Uh, uh, This year we happen to be camped in Mark. If we back up a little bit to Mark chapter 10 and, and look at what leads up to the triumphal entry, we see a pattern, just as we would see in any of the other Gospels. So in chapter 10, James and John, two of the apostles, are looking for a special privilege. They ask Jesus if they can sit on his, uh, either side of his throne when he comes into glory. They're, they're, they have this picture in their heads, you know, of a palace and rulership and uh, second and third in command. And Jesus basically says, you have no, no idea what you're asking. No idea. Because the path to glory involves suffering and death. And then starting in verse 43, he makes these upside down and backward statements. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John, um, what you think is north is actually south. What you think is up is actually down. Well, why so far off? Why 180 degrees wrong? Because the disciples are thinking according to the flesh, while Jesus is thinking and planning and acting according to the Spirit. In the very next passage, still in Mark chapter 10, They encounter the blind man Bartimaeus. A blind person in this culture was utterly dependent on other people's charity. He couldn't work. He couldn't provide for himself. He he, he didn't have marriage prospects. He was a drain on his extended family's already tight financial resources. A life in darkness and a life of poverty. And the timing was perfect. Jesus had just spoken these backwards, upside-down statements to correct the disciples, and they entered Jericho and encountered this blind man, as if to show the disciples, you are all blind like Bartimaeus. You're all utterly dependent on another's grace, charity. You live in darkness, and you need the light of life in order to see with faith-filled eyes these ultimate gospel truths. And then the triumphal entry (laughs) to set them up, to set us up. Do they, the, the people in the crowd, let alone the disciples, do we today understand how this true king would claim his throne and apply his power? You know, it's interesting uh, to, to stay at, with Bartimaeus for a, a minute more that when Bartimaeus calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, Jesus 
then asks him, what do you want me to do for you? The answer might not be so obvious. Maybe Bartimaeus wanted riches. Maybe he couldn't think any farther than the next meal, and he just wanted a handout. You know, he figured, what, what would this um, Jesus of Nazareth, who is doing mighty things, what, what kind of attention might he give me? Maybe just a few coins to buy the next meal. But Jesus asks about the desires of the heart because the heart tells all. And he goes right to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? You're here in church. Most of you call yourselves Christians, label yourselves as followers of Christ. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from him? What what do you assume he will do for you as you uh, uh, continue to be a good citizen and a good churchgoer? And you show up on Sunday and you volunteer and you give and you pray. Do you assume that Jesus will make your life easier? That he'll guard you from tragedy and suffering? That he will pave the path for you to nicer stuff, better jobs, more opportunities? But none of that is the ultimate reason for his coming. None of that has to do centrally with the climactic events from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Day. He has come to make you new. And that implies, that, that suggests there's something wrong that needs renewal, that needs regenerating. He has come to free you from darkness of your own, heart, of your own heart's sin. He has come to give you spirit eyes to see the greatest and truest of all realities, that He's died in your place that you and I deserve to be hanging on that cross because of our sin, that um, He has earned the Father's approval, which we could never earn because we have rebelled against the King. And He has come to promise victory over sin and death that He offers to each of us that we might receive by faith, by utter dependence on the charity of God to relieve us of our spiritual poverty. Bartimaeus wasn't just a, oh, by the way, on the way to Jerusalem, he happened to come across this guy who was blind and healed him. Absolutely instructive, this prior pattern. James and John wanting glory, and Jesus says, you have it backwards. Bartimaeus, blind, spiritually, utterly dependent, and Jesus providing in the healing light, life new hope, new opportunity, freedom from bondage, a new identity with new hopes. Bartimaeus asked for all of that. And you know, when Jesus opened his eyes, here's the beautiful thing. The first thing he saw, the first face his brain processed, broken as it was and now made new, was the face of his Savior Jesus. You know, Simone, I'll paraphrase, uh, just prayed that so often we we want stuff from Jesus when we need Jesus himself. And Bartimaeus got it. I want to see, did he really comprehend what he, the fullness of what he was asking for? Did he really comprehend the fullness of the answer to his simple um, um, plea? I want to see, Jesus says, see life. See light. See everything that you were made to wonder at in beauty. 
And it sounds arrogant unless you're the son of God and savior sinners. Jesus said, see me. Unbelievable. And Bartimaeus, the text says, began to follow after Jesus. You know, last thought on Bartimaeus. He didn't get a chance to listen to all these sermons. He didn't get a chance to witness all these miracles, listen to Jesus pray, learn what it was like to follow after Jesus. All Bartimaeus got to witness in the last week of Jesus' life was murderous animosity, accusation, betrayal, suffering, and death. And we think, oh, bummer that Bartimaeus didn't get to see earlier. Not at all. Because all Bartimaeus saw was all Bartimaeus needed to see. All that stuff, the ugliness of the last week of Jesus' life, what is the heart of the gospel, is the reason Jesus came to, to, to show us this unique backwards than we would think. North is south and up is down. The path to glory involved suffering. Bartimaeus saw everything he needed to see to understand what it meant to follow after Jesus. Does that change triumphal entry a little bit from celebratory parade to a sober understanding of how the king accomplished salvation? Zechariah 9, the prophecy we've read twice now, by the way, continues in verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. Those are the weapons of war. God says, I'll take them away. And he, the king, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The king's humility, Zechariah 9.9 plus Zechariah 9.10, the king's humility will eliminate weapons of war. And peace won't come from a mighty army. Peace will come from a suffering servant. That's triumphal entry. Consider this question. First from the perspective of the crowd, shouting hosannas, waving palm branches. Who did they think their enemy was? Who do they want this entering, conquering, hero king to vanquish, to finally defeat, to clear the way for them to be uh, happier, freer, most probably had in mind the Romans, the despised Gentile occupiers who prevented Israel from being fully Israel. Maybe some had in mind in their resentment of the religious leaders. You know, those people are the problem here. Jesus, take care of them. Same question from our perspective. Especially if you're a follower of Christ, who's the enemy? Who do you want Jesus to vanquish to eliminate, to get rid of, to, so that the church and you as a follower of Christ can fully flourish. The problem we always figure is out there, isn't it? ISIS is the problem. Jesus, take care of them. You know, without any loss of manpower, without spending billions on smart bombs. Jesus, take care of the radical Muslims. They're the, they're the problem with the world. Uh, and if we didn't have them, uh, we would be fine. Or anyone pushing unbiblical values, the drug dealers, the child molesters, the political party we don't support. 
or maybe close to home, Jesus, it's my boss, that neighbor, your spouse. But here's the truth. The real enemy, which Jesus has come to conquer, was and still is the sin-infected heart of every adoring, palm-waving fan along the parade route. And the real enemy is still the sin-infected heart of every church-going follower of Jesus. That's why he's come. That's the real enemy, the king, the conquering king, came entering Jerusalem with fanfare, knowing he would walk out of Jerusalem carrying a cross. How do we respond to all this? Lastly, our priorities, or maybe our our wrong priorities. These upside-down values aren't just interesting biblical details to mentally say, wow, isn't, isn't that interesting? Putting these pieces together and seeing the consistency with word and song. These are the core values of the kingdom of God, and therefore, these upside-down realities need to shape everything, uh, every thought and everything we do, every action we take, every word we speak. In contrast, though, isn't it true that so much of our lives is all about winning? And I use that word in, 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 the, in the, the widest sense, you know, certainly not in the Charlie Sheen kind of messed up sense, okay? Winning, accomplishing, achieving, um, out-competing, We're trained early on to get the best grades, to run as fast as we can in the race, to get a higher score than the other team. Later on, we're competing to get into college and then scrambling for the best jobs and then the best promotions. And and along the way, fewer winning opportunities are provided per capita. (laughs) It, It never ends. The treadmill never gives you a chance to hop off and take a break. We're we're all about winning, especially in this high-octane metro New York culture, right? Where the best and the brightest are always competing. I'm not saying we throw out the pursuit of excellence. I'm not saying we don't care. Even the Apostle Paul said, run in such a way as to get the prize. He says, work hard as working for the Lord. We should retain those pursuits of excellence, but we need to remember at the same time that discipleship, that trusting in and following after Jesus does involve centrally his pattern on the road to Calvary with all the suffering and insults and attacks and rejection. It ultimately involves seeing him lay down his life and realizing that my sacrifice as a follower of Christ, my laying down stuff, my losing, sometimes may be best, sometimes may be necessary in order to advance and participate in and appreciate God's saving purposes in my life and in this world. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior by faith, if you call yourself a Christian, if you're a follower of this Jesus, 
never forget that your ultimate winning, eternal life that you don't deserve, promised to you by faith, has come about through Jesus' unfathomable losing, the king in allowing himself to be humiliated, stripped down, nailed to a Roman cross, though he had done nothing wrong. In his biography of the German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Eric Metaxas describes Bonhoeffer's struggle uh, against the rising strength of the National Socialists and the decline of the German Christian church. And uh, Metaxas says, he was thinking about the deep call of Christ, which was not about winning, but about submission to God wherever that might lead. And then Metaxas uh, records the words of Bonhoeffer in a letter to a friend. Simply suffering, that is what will be needed then, not parries, blows, or thrusts, such as may still be possible or admissible in the preliminary fight. The real struggle that perhaps lies ahead must simply be to suffer faithfully. Prophetic words regarding his own life as he would spend years in prison and then be executed for his faith. And one of the key reasons a half century later that Bonhoeffer's words, his teaching, his values still resonate powerfully is that he understood the way of this conquering king to choose weakness even though you have strength, to choose to lay down one sword even if you have the advantage, to choose to submit even when fighting back is still possible. Do we ever do that? Choose. Not just when our hands are forced and we, we, you know, we've tried everything, we're backed into a corner, and then you, know, you, uh, you give the tap out, you submit, you give up, but you fight until the very end. But the way of Jesus suggests a choice. It's sometimes the path to glory a choice to suffer, a choice to give up opportunity, a choice to, can we use the word, lose. It's not about winning. If we say our lives are shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of the conquering king who entered Jerusalem with an upside-down kingdom value. Last thought. Um, Have you heard of the prayer of serenity? It was uh, written by a German-American whom Bonhoeffer had uh, interacted with at Union Seminary here in New York, Reinhold Niebuhr. It's best known for its use in Alcoholics Anonymous. And an ancient hymn offers this variation, I thought, fitting for this morning's theme. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. That will never rise to the New York Times bestseller prayer list among Christians because some of us would say, I'm a little scared to pray that prayer. I'm a little scared of how God might answer that prayer. But it reflects the heart of Palm Sunday. It reflects the beginning of the end for our Savior. Marching to His cross, which you and I deserve, choosing his suffering and death in order to free all who trust in him from condemnation. Who is this king of glory who would 
choose to subject himself to such humiliation. His name is Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, Savior of sinners. Let's pray in his name. Lord, as Holy Week, Suffering Week begins, reshape our attitudes towards you. Reshape what we expect from you. Whatever is wrongly of the world, of the flesh, put it to death. And shape in us your glory, which involves the path through suffering and the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.